Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. I decided to start Amazing Stories because as a fan, I couldn't find a podcast that was 100% dedicated to sharing stories of adventure, fantasy, the supernatural, and macabre. So please, follow, share, and if you can, support my podcast, Amazing Stories, where every day I bring you a new story. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy this amazing story. Mobsters, money, guns, gambling, prostitutes, and corrupt politicians. Like Chicago in the 1930s, Chongqing is legend. It became the backdrop for this story that would change China. And in charge? The equally legendary Bo Xilai. Boshilai was the son of a Communist Party hero, and he had big ambitions. He didn't want to be here in the sticks. His political enemies in Beijing had united to exile him among the mobsters. But his aim was to rule China, and he wasn't giving up without a fight. If he couldn't hog the spotlight in the capital, then he was going to bring that spotlight with him. When he went to Chongqing, he said, oh, what the hell, he's going to make a splash, you know, or he's just going to go for it and begin to really grandstand, you might say, or do dramatic things. Boshilai's old teacher, Stephen McKinnon, was still in touch. He must have known it was risky. He felt he'd been marginalised and they were putting him out to pasture, so what the hell? The whole of China looked on spellbound as Boshilai did something no one had dared to do since Chairman Mao. He went above the Communist Party machine and spoke directly to the public. Think Donald Trump. He dusted off the propaganda campaigns of early communist China. He had Chongqing singing Mao songs at mass rallies. 100,000 people amid a sea of red flags. The public loved it. His sort of touch as a politician, his charisma as a and personality, did have an impact of somehow connecting to the common man. If you want the public to support you, you have to do something for them. Lawyer Li Zhuang worked in Chongqing during the Boshilai era. He built roads, he fixed street lamps, cleaned up the city. He gave the public better health care, raised salaries and funded mass rallies to boost his profile. But he needed money. Chongqing wasn't rich, so what could he do? There was a fast way to make money. Arrest all the rich people and throw them in jail. Call them criminals. Confiscate their assets. Clean them out on the day of arrest. Apartments, villas, office buildings, cars, bank deposits. Everything would be confiscated. For a small crime boss, tens of millions. For a big crime boss, it could be more than 100 million. Overnight. In China, the assets of a mafia boss can be confiscated like that. 
So Bosiai called anyone and everyone a mafia boss, and he got all the money he needed. He arrested thousands and executed powerful people. Again, the public loved it. But in China, no politician can go after the rich and well-connected without the support of the chief of police. In Chongqing, his name was Wang Lijun. He's the fourth key character in our story. We couldn't tell you what happened in the Lucky Holiday Hotel without him. Wang Lijun was a narcissist. He arrived at crime scenes brandishing weapons and surrounded by TV cameras. He even had his own show, dramatising his life fighting crime. It was called Iron-Blooded Police Spirit, and it gets weirder. Our sources confirm reports that Wang Lijun attended executions. He supervised the harvesting of prisoners' organs and he even conducted his own autopsies. He was the perfect police chief for Bo Xilai. Wang and Bo were very similar. Both of them liked to do things on an epic scale. They liked to make headlines. Put them together and it was an explosive mix. Both of them were crazy. And the atmosphere they created? Well, it was frenzied, intense. It was insane. Chongqing was a police kingdom. So we're now at the police headquarters in Chongqing, which is where Wang Lijun worked. And this is not just a police headquarters like you'd see in some other country or some other city in China. The police really want to look intimidating. And even within Chinese police headquarters, I've seen this one counts as massive beyond massive. It's a great big white fortress behind impenetrably high walls. This is where Wellington worked. And he not only worked here, he lived here. He was paranoid. He thought people were out to get him. And so his staff say that in those days when he was running this place, his secretary had to taste every bite of food he ate, even down to sipping his cups of tea to make sure that they weren't poisoned. narcissist living in a fortress and blurring the line between fact and fiction. No wonder people in Chongqing remember Wang Lijun. And high-profile lawyer Li Zhuang has even better reasons than most. Because the police chief turned up in person to arrest him on the tarmac at Chongqing Airport, surrounded, of course, by TV cameras and with a film-ready script. The scene was so big, loads of police cars surrounded the plane, riot police and helmets and camouflage, armed with submachine guns. I asked, why the big show? Is it Obama's state visit, or are you capturing Osama bin Laden? We were surrounded by a huge scrum of reporters. He wanted to show his authority on camera. He was in a trench coat, hands in his pockets, he said, Li Zhuang, we meet again. 
Li Zhuang's arrest was big news across China. Not only were Wang Lijun and his boss Bo Shilai taking on crime gangs, now they were even taking on the well-connected lawyers who defended them. I was jailed for 548 days. That's a year and a half. I thought I would die in Chongqing and that they would rule China. Ruling China was certainly Bo Xilai's ambition. But to have any chance of success, he needed to do more than lock up the gangsters and their lawyers. Behind them were the really powerful players, his political enemies in Beijing. With a loyal police chief by his side, Bo Xilai thought he was a match for them. Until Neil Haywood checked into the Lucky Holiday Hotel. The Lucky Holiday Hotel is not a destination I recommend. This is the villa in which Neil Hayward died. Quite secluded, it's quite lonely, it's at the end of a cul-de-sac. Um, and surrounded by vegetation, the hillside falling away below. So we're now having an altercation with the security outside, um, outside Villa 16. Um, they're getting very agitated because they don't want us here. Now we've got three local security from the complex and there's somebody else coming this way now. Oh, and there's somebody else up on the balcony. So I can't get a word in edgeways here. Go, go, go! Oh, go, go, go! OK. The manager tells me to put my questions about Neil Hayward's death to... Neil Hayward? So how can we ask Neil Hayward when he's dead? He's telling us to ask Neil Hayward. It's sinister. The manager says we should go to hell to find Neil Hayward and ask him. Neil Hayward died in November 2011. A decade had passed since the hot air balloon and the bunga bunga money in Bournemouth. Back then, he'd helped Bo Xilai's wife, Gu Kailai, move money through tax havens into property in the West. But at some point, the trust between her and Neil Hayward had broken down. Gu Kailai had moved to Chongqing to play the part of the politician's wife. But in the frenzied climate of that city, she was becoming ever more isolated paranoid. But in a way, paranoia is rational in the Chinese political system because people almost certainly are out to get you. James Richards is a former British diplomat in China and a friend of Neil Hayward's. Gu Kailai believed that she and her husband had been poisoned and were going to die. And she was depressed and angry and um, vindictive about that. This according to Neil, of course. Chinese history is full of poison plots and paranoia. Gu Kailai no longer trusted anyone, including her former fixer, Neil Hayward. From what Neil said, the estrangement was very clear and definite. And I think it was painful to Neil, actually. I think he had feelings of admiration in some ways for Bo Xilai and Gu Kailai and, uh, and a friendship and they'd been in touch a long time. Gukalai was furthermore godmother to Neil's daughter, 
And I think it was may have been the prospect of somehow resolving the issues between them, possibly repairing the relationship, but certainly resolving the issues between them, that led to his going down to Chongqing. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Chongqing. See you next time and have a nice day. Thank you. On the 13th of November 2011, Neil Hayward arrived in Chongqing. This is one version of what happened next. Everything has been arranged. A car takes him from the airport along Chongqing's new highways and up a winding mountain road to a secluded villa complex, the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Neil Hayward and Gu Kailai have dinner. And in his room, they share a nightcap. Neil Hayward gets drunk, staggers to the bathroom and slips over in his own vomit. Gukailai calls in her assistant, who's been waiting outside the bedroom door, the same person who accompanied Neil Hayward from Beijing. Together, they drag Neil Hayward onto the bed. He begs for water. She drips poison into his mouth. She waits until she can no longer feel Neil Hayward's pulse, and then Gukailai scatters pills around the room to make it look like an overdose. And as she leaves, she hangs a do not disturb sign on the door. Again, this is one version of what happened. We'll come to others. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The official story at the time was very different. Five weeks after Neil Hayward's death, a memorial service at a church on the banks of the River Thames in London. I felt rather miserable and I could see that Neil's family who were there were profoundly upset, as were his, some of his old school friends who were, who were there. James Richards. There was no body to bury. It had been cremated in Chongqing two days after the British consulate had been notified of the death. Nobody at the memorial service knew that Neil Hayward had been murdered. There'd been no autopsy. The official cause of death had been given as excessive alcohol consumption. The family had been told he'd died of a heart attack. James Richards had spent many evenings with Neil Hayward in China, and he didn't believe either version. I do recall feeling most uncomfortable with that because Neil was, what, 40, 41 at the time. He was slim. He did not look like someone who would likely have a heart attack. Neil was not a great drinker in my experience. One of the reasons why I felt I was surprised 
when I heard, and suspicious when I heard that he had apparently, he might have got drunk and that this might have contributed to his death. Uh, when I heard that he died in Chongqing, and further that his body had been cremated soon after his death, my suspicions grew very strong to the point where if I had been asked to place a bet one way or the other, I would have said that I believed he was likely to have been murdered. Back in Chongqing, business as usual. Our police chief, Wang Lijun, had covered up the murder for the boss's wife. Forensic evidence destroyed. Body cremated. Officers silenced. No problem. And for a while, the cover-up seemed perfect. But then... Something went very wrong between our three surviving characters. The politician, his wife and his police chief. Twelve weeks after the murder, police chief Wang Lijun was running for his life. The man who normally loved the limelight got into his car under cover of darkness. Disguised as an old woman, he drove 200 miles to the nearest American consulate and he begged for their protection. Once inside, he told an astonishing story. Next time on Murder in the Lucky Holiday Hotel, a tricky moment for American diplomacy. It was becoming a very dangerous situation. The British come looking for answers. It is a death that needs to be investigated in its own terms, without political consideration. And the murderer's playboy son enters the stage. I have never driven a Ferrari. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.